Today we start a new series, and it is called Peace and Quiet, Developing the Discipline of Slowing Down in a World Intent on Speeding Up. And just a little disclaimer as we get going, um, I had this fear in this series that um, I'm probably speaking to about 80% of the room, Uh, and so when I was telling Mike Warner that, he said, oh, no, no, no. It seems like I talk to more and more retired people who are busier than when they were working. And so I might be wrong on that. We might be um, talking to 100% of the room, and I I hope that we are. Um, But regardless, here is the temptation in this series. It will be to compare yourself to everyone else. And I would just simply say that this series is not about everyone else. This series is about you, and it is about me. And so I want to start um, with something that happened a long, long time ago. It was an invention, in fact. It was an invention that would change the world, that, that the way people functioned was now going to be different. It was for the first time a device that would help them to really measure a day. And it was invented in about 300 B.C., It was called a sundial. And this invention would revolutionize the world because it would mark for people hours and allow them to have days and weeks. And then another huge invention that came along in 1370 in Cologne, Germany. It was the first city that actually did it. They put a clock tower in the center of the city with an alarm, a bell that would ring every hour on the hour, alerting people to what time it was so that they could get to where they needed to go. One historian says, here was man's declaration of insolence. Um, Declaration of insolence from the sun, new proof of his mastery over himself and his surroundings. Only later would it be revealed that he had accomplished this mastery by putting himself under the dominion of a machine imperious with imperious demands all its own. And so now there was a clock that was going to determine where you would be and when that was that you needed to be there. And there would be a bell that rang throughout the city that alerted you, it is time to move. It is time to do something Else. And then in 1879, excuse me, 1879, a guy named Thomas Edison invents the light bulb and revolutionized the world because now people could rise before the sun and they could stay up well past the time the sun sets. And the reason that this was so revolutionary prior to 1879 and the invention of the light bulb, the average person in our world slept 11 hours every night because at the end of the day when the sun went down, you would go to sleep and then you would rise the next morning when the sun came up and the winters were long and slower days with the, I'm sorry, short days with longer nights and then the summer was of course um, longer days with more activity and less rest but there was this rhythm to the world. And then prior, as I said, prior to the invention of the light bulb, 11 hours of sleep, fast forward to the turn of the 20th century, 1900, the average American was getting nine hours of sleep. 
So in just 21 years, the invention of the light bulb altered our sleep habits by over two hours. Now, fast forward to today. The average American gets seven hours of sleep a night. A four-hour shift in just 150 years. Not to mention the invention of such um, so many things in our homes and houses that we take for granted. For instance, um, you date back 50, 60, 70 years ago, if you wanted your house to be warmer, you would track out into the woods, you would find a tree, you would get an axe, you would cut it down, you would drag it back into your home, you would cut it up, and then you would have fire for the winter, and you would build a fire. Fast forward today, you walk over to a thermostat on your wall and you adjust a dial. Or for many of you, you grab your smartphone, or for some of you, you even tell Alexis to do it for you. Everything became super, super convenient. And then came the car. And with the car, you were able to travel instead of walking across town. Or the time to take public transportation, everyone had access in our country. For the most part, everyone has access and I would say almost everyone in this room has access to a vehicle or your time of transportation and travel. Now we live in a world with computers and iPads and iPhones where you are virtually connected to the world 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it brought this incredible question to mind. With all of the new luxuries, with all of the time-saving devices, where did the time go? See, a Senate subcommittee back in 1967 said by the year 1985, the average American will work 22 hours a week for just 27 weeks a year. The, the thought by the Senate subcommittee was the problem in 1985 is that people are going to have too much leisure. And then it does, it brings up that question. With all the time-saving devices that we have at our disposal, where does the time go? Because my guess is for most of you, you are busier now than you were 15, 20, 30 years ago. But yet we have more devices that are supposed to make us more efficient and help us get more done in shorter time so that we don't have as much going on. And the question that, that just is so powerful and so, so important, and it's the, the premise of this entire series, is this question. What will this new pace of life do to our souls? Because my guess in your running, in your busyness, in your hurried life, you've probably never stopped for just a second to ask that question. What will this new pace of life do to our soul? And in this little brief history, we haven't really come to the most um, climactic point. 
which I would say was 2007. And I think when you look back years and years from now in the history books, it will rank right up there with 1440 and Gutenberg's printing press. But 2007 is the year that Steve Jobs stood before a massive crowd and introduced the world to the iPhone. Because this revolutionary device would change the way that everything worked. No longer was it just a portable music player. Now it was a device that you could get emails and text messages and phones and pictures, and you could have the world at your fingertips. But also with 2007 came Facebook and Twitter and the cloud and the app store where you could find amazing, time-saving devices right there. Now, today, in 2020, if you're average, you touch your phone 2,617 times a day. And the average American spends over three hours every day on their phone in 26 different sessions that you're picking up your phone, putting it down, picking it up, putting it down. There's actually a device, if you have an iPhone, where you can go to settings and screen time, and it will tell you exactly how much time you spend on your phone and how much time you spend in each application. Seth Godin um, says this, remember, Your phone doesn't actually work for you like we think it does. You pay for it, yes, but it works for a multi-billion dollar corporation in California, not for you. You're not the customer, you're the product. It is your attention that is for sale along with your peace of mind. See, if you're like me, you probably spend a large amount of your day with your head buried in something, a phone, an iPad, a computer, and it is wreaking havoc on our soul. And in the time that we do have where we actually slow down, we actually lose because we're lost in cyber world. And I wonder if this new way of life is actually compatible with the way of Jesus. This fast-paced, hyper-connected world, if it's compatible with the way of Jesus. Because you think about the Psalm, Psalm 23. It's not a fast-paced, fast-moving liturgy. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He leads me in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Or you think about the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They are not developed at a fast pace. It takes time. Or Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and specifically the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are you who are persecuted because of righteousness. Those do not happen. You don't find the blessing of that in a fast-paced, hurried world. The poet T.S. Eliot, in one of his long um, sonnets, The Four Quartets, says this, neither, um, neither plentitude nor vacancy, only a flicker over the strained time-ridden faces, distracted from distraction by distraction, filled with fancies and empty of meaning. I love that phrase. We live in a world where we are distracted by distractions by distraction. It is this pace we live at that has created this pathological busyness. Because I can tell you this morning as you came in and I had a chance to greet some of you, I was just wondering how many times I would hear when I ask how your previous week word was. I heard from six different people, busy. Hi, how was your week? Busy. How many people would that describe your last week? It was busy. It was hurried. It was at a very fast pace that I wonder if I can keep up with. Corey Tinboom, a Holocaust survivor, said that the greatest problem that we face in our world is actual busyness. And she said that if the devil can't make you bad, he will make you busy. Because if you're busy, you will not pay attention to your soul. John Ortberg, who is a, a writer, a preacher, a teacher, a professor, tells a story about Dallas Willard when he was alive, who was a professor and a preacher and a teacher as well. And he asked Willard, who was much older, what is it that I need to do to walk and be in relationship with Jesus? And Willard responded, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Slow down. To which Ortberg said, okay, great. Now what else must I do? And he said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Because love takes time. Peace takes time. It takes slowing down. It takes stopping. It takes creating a rhythm in your life. 
And yet we say as we get older, the time seems to move faster and faster and faster. I I never hear people say, well, it just seems like my days and weeks drag on and but it seems like the time is speeding up. And I wonder if the problem is not the time has sped up as much as we have sped up to the point that time has just simply become a blur. And it's difficult in our day to see and have conversations with people, real conversations, because we're in such a hurry to move and get things done and to be productive and check out the new app that we have that's going to help us to do that and accomplish that and keep us reminded of what's going on in our life and what we have to do next. And all of a sudden, we've been on our phone three and a half hours. And we've missed what's going on around us. But what if time could slow down? What if there was a way to walk with Jesus? at a slower pace and actually allow some of the disciplines that Jesus talks about to seep into your heart and soul and transform your life. See, because as you you hear this series, you're probably not going to think, oh, I know exactly what chapter verse this spiritual discipline is talked about in the Bible. Because I think there are some places, I don't know if Jesus would have said, well, this is a spiritual discipline during his day. It was just the way of life for Jesus in his day. But Jesus didn't have an iPhone and 24-7 connectivity and Facebook and a world of distractions that we have. And I would say this is a discipline that we all must develop as we continue to move into the future, slowing down from our rapid pace of hurry And simply asking the question, is there a better way to live? We're going to begin in Exodus chapter 3. And just so you know where we're going, um, today we're going to talk most of the time about the problem. And then next week we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the solution to the problem more in depth. And then the third week we're going to talk about what it could be like on the other side if we could somehow find a way to step out of this frantic, fast-paced world for just a little bit and ask God to restore our soul. So Exodus chapter 3, a new Pharaoh has come to power, and he does not know Joseph. Joseph is the one that redeemed and saved the people and led them um, to basically salvation, giving them food and and rest for his brothers and his father. And Joseph has been in command and in charge of Egypt. Joseph has now died. And a new Pharaoh is in command, and he didn't really understand what Joseph did or how much he meant. And Joseph's world was forgotten. And so, starting in chapter 3, verse 7 or 8, Israel has found themselves as slaves in Egypt. And God speaks to Moses through a burning bush. And in verse 7, he says, The Lord Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. 
and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So they find themselves as slaves in this place called Egypt. And what is it that slaves do? Slaves work for their master. And what do slaves do today? They work. What do slaves do tomorrow? They work. And what do slaves do the next day? They work. And when do slaves get a day off? Probably never. They work, 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 work every day. And they're crying out to God. They're distraught because of the life that they are stuck in. And so God says to them, to Moses, I have seen, I have heard my people crying out. I'm concerned about their suffering. And so I'm going to come down and I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to pull them out of slavery and I'm going to set them free and then I'm going to let them go. And so he has this conversation with Moses and Moses doesn't want to go to Pharaoh. I'm sure you've probably heard parts of this story before at least. And he does not want to go and he says, I'm going to send Aaron with you. And so he starts out in chapter 5, verse 1. After Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. So he comes with this really simple request. These people who are trapped and stuck in slavery, I want you to let them go into the wilderness for three days. They're going to worship, and then they will come back to their work. Pharaoh says, no, 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 no. You don't get a break. You don't get to go. I'm not going to let the people go. Then skipping down to verse 5, then Pharaoh said, look at the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks today as the day before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy, and that is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to the lies. So this was Pharaoh's world, and this was Egypt's reality. Work, 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 work. And then when they ask to leave and to take a break from the work, Pharaoh says, no, they're lazy. I'm going to make the work harder. You could say it like this. In, in Egypt, Israel's value was bricks. Their worth, their value in the world was what they produced. They were only as good Pharaoh, 
and to Egypt is what they were able to produce. Work, work, work. Produce more bricks. And then Pharaoh comes along and says, well, I'm not going to give you straw. You can go do that yourself. Why? Because the people are lazy. They need to work harder. They need to put in more hours. They need to produce more. Why? Because Pharaoh had something to build for himself. It wasn't just a city. It wasn't just a world where he was in control. He was building his name so that he would be known throughout the world. Work, work, work. See, if you're like me, you find incredible value and self-worth in what it is that you produce. You find incredible value and self-worth in what you produce. And I'll just be honest, as a, a preacher, there are some days where I walk away thinking, oh, man, that wasn't very good. I feel like I could have prepared better. I could have thought through that more. And I put worth and value in myself and what I was able to produce that day. And sometimes I feel like that's the way that God looks at me. It's about what you produce. And I know there's, there's going to be people come up to me afterwards and say, oh, you do a good job, and, and we're just so thankful that you do that. And, but that's not the point. The point is about me, that I place more value in what I produce for God than who I am in God's eyes. It's possible to work and work and work and work and produce and produce and produce and never be able to step out of that cycle and never feel the peace of God in your heart and soul. And see, I walk away from this story of Israel and Egypt as slaves with some things that I learned that I think are very important for all of us and relate so well to our world today. The first one is this, there will always be more bricks to produce. Pharaoh never gets to a point where he says, you know what, I think my name's big enough now. I think I have enough money, I have enough wealth. I don't need any more bricks. Why don't y'all just go, you, you take a week off, everything's okay. When you come back at your leisure, then you can get back to making bricks. Pharaoh never runs out of a need for more bricks. Your company, your employer, your house, wherever it is that you work or serve or share, will never come to a point where they no longer need you to make bricks. 
Second is this. There will always be a need to produce bigger and better. That tower, that house was great. This one needs to be more luxurious. This one needs to actually reach to the heavens. Work bigger and better. Last year's profits were great. This year's need to be better. The number of people you saw last year was great. You need to see more people this year. You always need to produce bigger and better. The iPhone, what, whatever, what number are we on now? Like 18? 11? Okay. Um, people start to say, you know what? The iPhone 11 is great, but I really wish it could brush my teeth for me too. There's always a need to produce bigger and better. Number three is this. You do not get the time back you spend making bricks. There is not a rewind button where you say, I've produced, I've produced, I've produced, I've produced. Now I'm going to go back and enjoy my family. Now I'm going to go back and take care of my marriage. Now I'm going to go back. You don't get the time back. And four is this. If you don't guard your soul, your marriage, and your family, no one else will. No one is hovering over you and asking, well, what's your marriage like? How's your wife doing with the 60 hours a week that you're working? How are your kids doing when you're not there? No one will ever ask you that. Because there's always a need for more bricks. And there's always a need to produce bigger and better. And so God frees them from slavery. He, he takes them out of a world where all they do is produce, 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 produce. And he leads them into a world where they don't produce, produce, produce. And they're wandering around in the desert at a much slower pace, wandering in circles, it seems like. And what do they do when they get there? You know... It sure would be nice to go back to Egypt. The, the people who complain, all we do is, is make bricks. All we do is work, work, work. All we do is produce, produce, produce. Bigger, better, bigger, better, more. Our values in bricks. They're set free from what they hated and what they complained about for so long. And they get out and there's nothing there and they're disoriented and they start complaining and saying, I wish we could go back and work every day in slavery. Well, I mean, there it was a little bit better because we had something to do every day and now we're wondering and we had good meat and, and some vegetables there and now we're wondering, oh, we get manna every day and so this is kind of bad. And they come to a point where they want to stone Moses the leader, appoint a new leader, and go back to Egypt to live in slavery. And, and it blows my mind. How in the world do they come to this place 
where everything is chaos in their world and they hate it and they're begging for God to set them free from it and they're depressed and they're angry and God does set them free and then they're depressed and they're angry about it and they want to kill Moses and go back. Like they, they literally want to choose to go back to that world. How, how in the world do they come to that point where they think, well, th- this would at least be better if we're back. I mean, we have something to do there. Maybe that would be better. But I, th- I think we probably relate to that more than we, we think we do. Because for some of you, you've been to a doctor, and they said, you know what, you really need to lose some weight. About 20 or 30 pounds would be great. And you go home, and you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. And you figure out a diet plan, and you call the health club and say, hey, I'm going to start Monday morning. Can I have a personal trainer? And you start going. And you start eating right, and you start going to the health club, and you're, you're working out. And you go back to your doctor six months later, and you step on the scale, and you're down 30 pounds. And your doctor says, this is amazing. You're the first person that's ever listened to me when I said that. (laughs) This is amazing. Just keep this up, and everything is going to be great. And at first, it's, it's pretty good. And then you're running late to a meeting, and you think, you know what? I don't really have time to go get a salad, so I'm, I'm going to run through Whataburger. I'm going to run through McDonald's, but it's just this one time. It's fine. And just in a few short months, what have we done? We've gone back to where we started. And we worked so hard to, to kind of curb the addiction and the, the thoughts of the food and to, to work out and get in the habit of doing this. And then all of a sudden, it's gone. We, we went back to Egypt pretty quickly. My guess is, if I were to tell some of you to slow down, you, you'll do it for just a little bit. But pretty quickly, we're going to move right back into our frantic pace of life. And I I would imagine that you do it without thinking about it. That if you, you put away your phone or your computer for a little while, that it's great. And you start watching the amount of time you spend on it, you're it's going to go down. But inevitably you're probably going to come back to it. So I I heard an interesting study that was done. Back um, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, when casinos were really trying to popularize slot machines, they hired a group of cognitive psychologists that began to research the stimulus-response ratio of slot machine pulls in customers. So in other words, a a person goes and they sit down in a slot machine, they pull the lever. What the cognitive psychologist wanted to know was how many times will they pull the lever and not get a response, not get a a win, 
and then stay there and continue to pull it? What's the correct ratio of stimulus to response? So we'll pull 16 times, but if we don't win something, we're going to get up and leave. And so they, they tracked brain activity to figure out what it was. And if you're wondering if it worked or not, last year in our country, slot machines made more money than all of Major League Baseball and the film industry combined. Why does that matter? The same groups of cognitive psychologists that were hired to research this at casinos were hired by Apple and by Facebook because they wanted to know what they needed to do to keep you glued to your phone. And if we release this post to 16 of your friends right now and you get four likes and then we re-release it to another 16 friends 45 minutes later and you get 15 likes and we release it again and you get six more likes that you're going to keep coming back to your phone because the stimulus response time is measured to a T. And that is built into our world. For some of you, my guess is if you were to look at your screen time, it would blow your mind. Because for most people in here, I'm going to say, I don't really, I'm not on my phone that much. But what we do is we do 15 minutes here, and 15 minutes here, and 10 minutes here, and 30 minutes here, and all of a sudden our day is eaten up. See, what, what's crazy is you take the three hours and 10 minutes the average American spends on their phone in a day, if you were to take one-third of that time, you could read the entire Bible through four times in a year. So you ask the question, what is this pace of life doing to our soul? And we hear God talk to, Egypt, to Israel in Egypt and say, I've heard you crying out, I'm concerned. And I wonder if God's message to us might be something similar. I, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, but I wonder if our message would be a little bit, I've seen the misery of my people on Facebook. Or I've seen the misery of my people on Instagram. I've seen... I've seen the misery of my people in their profession. I've seen the misery of my people trapped on Netflix. I've seen the misery of my people lost on YouTube. I've seen the misery of my people in the endless pursuit to be good enough for God. I've seen the misery of my people in the pursuit of endless success. Because our life, it's so many times is not about what God thinks about us, but it's about what we produce. Seeing the misery of my people trapped in debt. And maybe the message to Egypt is the same message to you. I have heard 
them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. So we live in a world today with more mental illness, depression, and suicide than ever before. We have an opioid epidemic in our country. We have chronic fatigue like never before. We self-medicate. Maybe not through drugs, but maybe more powerful narcotics like Facebook and Netflix than ever before. Because we're simply looking for a way to escape the slavery that we find ourselves in. And I think God's invitation to the people is so interesting. Let's take a three-day journey into the wilderness. Let's, let's break apart from this for a little bit and slow down for just a moment. Let's slow down for just a moment and see if we can't find God. So knowing that this series was coming up, one of the things that our family has done is we decided to do a media fast. Our kids are super excited about it. But we have not turned on the TV. We canceled Netflix. We're not looking at Facebook. I'm not responding to messages as when I get them. I'm responding to them at certain times. I'm not checking my emails constantly. And I've turned off almost every notification that I have on my phone. Because, you know, the notifications you get are really important. Someone liked your $2.99 purse that you got at Walmart yesterday. And you know that the, the, the Weather Channel update is really important because they're trying to save baby seals in Antarctica that were trapped by an avalanche. And if you'll text 777 to seal savior, you can donate 10 bucks. Everything presents itself as urgent and important. But the question this series asks is, what is this pace of life doing to your soul? Have you been able to slow down just long enough to ask that question? And so here's what I would ask you to do. I'm going to invite you just as God invited Israel to take a three-day journey into the wilderness. But I'm going to invite you to take a seven-day journey. And it's the wilderness of no technology for seven days. Just, just set it aside as much as you can. Like, don't, don't go get fired this week because you didn't answer your boss. <laughs> but as much as possible, if you're a doctor and you're on call, I mean, I, okay, as much as possible, unplug from this world. And then the bigger question is like, what do we do with the time? I promise you, you can find some things. Read your Bible, pray, take a nap. Play with your kids. 
talk to your wife. We, I, I found over the last week, we have talked more as a family in the last week than maybe we did the last month, just with good conversation. We've done four and a, three and a half puzzles as a family this week. And our kids have smelled terrible at the end of every day because they played outside from the time they could go out until they could come in. See, this is the question. What, what good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What, what good is it to produce and produce and produce and come to the end and have nothing left. And so I want to leave you as we move into our time of communion with these powerful, powerful words and invitation from Jesus. And this invitation is for you who have been running at an incredibly unsustainable pace for far too long. Hoping that if we get to a point that it's finally going to slow down, let me just tell you, it won't unless you make it. Unless you pull the plug, unless you step out of the cycle, it won't slow down. So would you close your eyes and listen to these words from Jesus? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light.